0: Our reading tonight is Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events.
1: Good evening, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here. What an encouraging passage, hey? (laughs) Thanks for reading for us, Lynn. Um, Just a couple of... One other announcement um, that I wanted to make... Uh, because I'm going to be a part of it, is that at the end of this year, we're actually going to take a short-term mission across to Thailand. Um, And that may be news to you. Um, Church often does this at the end of the year uh, in that Christmas period. And so if that's something that piques your interest, uh, then come and talk to me or Christy afterwards. Um, we'll be probably visiting uh, people that we support, uh, both the Yawans uh, and also up in Chiang Mai. We're also gonna be doing stuff uh, with people that we've worked with, with people that Jonah's worked with on the border. Um, so a whole lot of different things seeing ministry across Thailand. Um, Jan Yawans here in Australia at the moment, she's getting some medical uh, stuff done, uh, just, just follow up tests. Um, and she's actually going to be talking about um, the work that they've been doing since they've been back in Thailand just these last couple of months. So next Sunday at 5 p.m., uh, probably in L1, L2, she's just going to have a little catch-up. She just wants to say thank you and just tell you about how things have been going post-COVID in Thailand, and what they've been able to do and what they haven't been able to do. So if you'd like to be a part of that, next Sunday, 5 p.m., in L1, L2. Uh, If you want to go on the short-term mission or just want to express interest and find out more, come and talk to me or Christy. Um, Now, as we've been thinking, Acts has shown us very, very clearly over these last couple of weeks that persecution doesn't hinder the spread of the gospel. Rather, Jesus' followers are emboldened by it. But there's a lot more to this than bravery. Straight after his Pentecost sermon, Luke summarized back in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, that community that was established as a result of the Spirit coming, they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. And this was expressed in signs and wonders, having everything in common, meeting in the temple courts, breaking bread in homes, enjoying the favour of the people. Now that sounds like just a little summary of what's going on, but Luke was already thinking of this, what we're coming to. All of those things are headings that he expands upon. And so last week, or the last two weeks, chapters three and four have been an example of a sign and wonder, the things that come out of that, the the persecution and also the amazing opportunities. And in chapters, the end of chapter four and through chapter five, we're going to see his detailing of what it looks like to have everything in common. Acts is so much more than just a history of what took place And so let's ask for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us right now. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord Jesus, thank you that through Luke you had written down the things that we need to know. On our own we are able to understand these words and concepts, but without your Spirit at work in us, they would be water off a duck's back. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us. Please Use these words to cut us to the heart so that we will be transformed more and more into your likeness. We ask this for your glory. Amen. I want you guys to pick a fairy tale, any fairy tale. Snow White, Hansel and Gretel, Jack and the Beanstalk, maybe. If you think about them, what do they have in common? Characters are introduced. A challenge arises. The hero overcomes the challenge. And they all live happily ever after. No matter how bad things are, they always work out in the end. That, and a bit of magic, is what makes them a fairy tale. And I think that some would say that also describes the start of the book of Acts. In the first four chapters, everything goes well. In fact, it has been pretty much as close to perfection as we could imagine. What started out as a small, scared group of 120 believers has grown rapidly. 3,000 added at Pentecost. A further 2,000 added after the healing of the paralyzed man. And when opposition does strike, as it did in the passage we looked at last week, the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, stand up against the exact same group of leaders who crucified Jesus. And the apostles win. Their witness about Jesus continues. Jesus' name is the only name given unto men by which we must be saved. And literally thousands of Jews in Jerusalem were acknowledging exactly that. That their keeping of the law, what we call the Old Testament, couldn't save them, but Jesus' death and resurrection had. It seems again almost fairy tale like that nothing can slow down the multitudes from accepting that Jesus has risen from the dead and accepting him as their Lord and Messiah. And because it is such a perfect start, when we read that a married couple are struck down dead, it comes as a very, very terrible shock. And complicating the matter for us as we think about, well, what does it mean, is the presenting issue of money. When you go to a financial advisor, they're qualified to talk about money, and you pay them to do so with your best interests at heart. But when a pastor starts talking about money, many feel that there's an inherent conflict of interest there. My pay or stipend, and that of the other church staff, comes from your giving. And so it may be assumed by some that I will say whatever is needed to bump up the giving. Increase the offering. It actually is very possible, I would be surprised if it hasn't been the case, that at least some people here have already heard this passage used in an attempt to manipulate them into giving more money at church. Something perhaps along the lines of Ananias and Sapphira hold back when they're giving and look what happens to them. You don't (laughs) want to be like Ananias and Sapphira, do you? Let's pass the bags (laughs) around. Now, now if you feel that that's what happens tonight, then I very sincerely and honestly give you my permission to come and rebuke me afterwards. These verses are not here to bump up the budget, to pressure you to give, to suggest that you sell your house and put it in the offering, put the money in the offering. While this passage will make us think about generosity, Given its placement, sandwiched between chapter 4 verses 32 to 37 and then 5, 12 to 16, I'm convinced that Luke goes into so much detail about Ananias and Sapphira because he had a much bigger issue in mind than generosity and giving at church. He wants to deal with the issue of community. And so we're going to think through Christian community in four parts. The first point, Christian community established in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. The second point, how a me-focus destroys community, chapter 5, 1 to 11. Third point, a we-focus expands community, five twelve to 16. And in the point 4, we're going to think about our own community, the community here at WBC. So point 1, Christian community established. Recognizing that Luke is a very structured writer means that we should take careful notice of the summary statement that he writes down in 4:32 to 37. It is absolutely essential for his message to recognize the implications both of what he is saying, what he's summarizing about the past, and also what he's setting up for what he's going to say in future verses. So have a look at chapter 4 verses 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, sorry, so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What an amazing outcome there is from people accepting Jesus as Lord and Messiah. All the believers were one In heart and mind. No division. No disagreement. Everyone pulling in exactly the same direction. Now, while our experience might be put two Christians in a room and you have at least three opinions, that is not how things began in the early church. The the end of chapter four continues the fairy tale-like, or even better, heaven-on-earth portrayal that has been the case In these opening chapters. When the religious leaders sought to stop the witness to Jesus, the believers prayed for more boldness to continue in their task. And filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 31, that is exactly what they did. It's what we saw at the end of last week. Now, this week, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continue to testify. That is, they are witnesses of Jesus through a combination of miracles and preaching. But even more miraculous than what the apostles were going around doing was the great grace, literally the mega grace, verse 33 says, that was at work in all the believers. Now, I hope you're already familiar with the well-known definition of grace, God's unmerited favour. Some people prefer to use the acronym God's Riches, At Christ's expense. Uh, Sorry, at Christ's expense. Either way, grace means that God treats us better than we deserve. And normally, we primarily think about grace with regards to our salvation. We are saved by grace, not works. That's the one truth that comes out so clearly from the Reformation. Which means that by association, we might assume that Luke is saying that mega grace means mega amounts of converts, which obviously has taken place, 5,000, another 2,000. Um, but according to verse 34, in the text, what does it say? How was mega grace evident in the early church? It resulted in no needy persons among them. So united are the believers that when one of them is in need, Another meets that need. This is not pork barreling like the politicians do, or charity that may imply that I'm somehow better than you. As it will be put into words later in the New Testament, when you believe in Jesus, you become a part of his body. And We've all stubbed our toe or got a paper cut at some point. Even a tiny cut can stop the rest of the body from doing anything else. And so it is with the Christian community. When one person hurts, the other people in the community go out in sympathy, doing whatever they can to relieve the pain. Now both as an example of this, and to introduce someone who will become very important later in the book of Acts, we hear what Joseph did, verses 36 to 37. When Joseph or as we know him better by his nickname, Barnabas, observes a need amongst his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, he does what is supernaturally inspired. He sells a field that he owned, and he puts the money from the sale at the apostles' feet. Verse 37. Now that is some very, very serious generosity. Imagine telling an Australian to to sell their prized possession, put the money in the plate. Now, it's so amazing that some have labelled it Christian communism. They've even come up, came up with a little logo of it. Um, and I think that Christian communism fits the description of verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But I think that the title Christian communism misses the point. What is portrayed in Acts 4 was a voluntary outworking of a Holy Spirit-given unity. The believers were one because they had accepted Jesus as Lord and Messiah, not because they would bought into a particular political philosophy. The looking out for one another that expressed itself in financial giving was a result, the fruit of unity that was given to them by grace. It was not an apostolic directive or even peer pressure from the other Christians, suggesting that they were expected to do this now that they were followers of Jesus. This was not the newly established practice replacing the tithe of the Old Covenant. It was supernaturally enabled. Because the Holy Spirit was in them, generosity came out of them. Which explains why this expression of unity flowing over into love, was so much better than the law had ever been able to achieve. God's people in the Old Testament were already required by law to look after widows and orphans and foreigners. Yet it seems that obedience to the law was unusual. When Boaz looks after Naomi and Ruth, his generosity, while required, is absolutely stunning because it is so rare. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 10 and 11 are written in the context of the law that was given to Moses. God knows, even he tells us in his law, that even keeping the letter of the law won't eradicate poverty. And yet, God's people are to be generous. Jesus also recognised the same thing. You will always have the poor among you. But in response to that, sinful nature, rather than looking after the poor, has a natural tendency to look after itself. The exciting thing in the book of Acts is that the believers are not only natural, they are supernaturally united. And it shows in their willingness to put others first. Now, even without reading Acts 4 and 5, we already know we're supposed to put others first but what will motivate us to actually do it? I think our passage shows that it depends on how we think of others, which is why another term used frequently in the Bible for believers is family. When Christy and I first became parents, we had already lived over in Thailand for about two years, and in that time we'd never owned an air conditioner it was our attempt at the time to live like the locals in the 30 to 40 degree heat. But when Amelia was born, aircon was installed in the upstairs room straight away. For us as adults, aircon would have been a much appreciated luxury. But now that our daughter had a need, we met it without a second thought. There were lots of other babies in Thailand at the time for whom aircon would have been very, very beneficial. But it's what my daughter meant to me that meant that I acted in this way. All of us know what it is to do more for others than we would do for ourselves. That is love expressed to the one that we care for. The amazing thing is that most of the believers were not biologically related And yet they understood that they had been adopted into God's family and that was their priority relationship. The kind of care that was expressed by selling real estate was an outworking of the unity that has graciously been given to them, the family that they'd been brought into. They were part of one big happy family. Now, if Acts was a fairy tale, we would end there with the words, And they all lived happily ever after. But Acts is Luke's record of real events. And having established what genuine Christian community resulting from grace looks like, Luke shows how a me-focus attempts to destroy community, hence our reading. Point two, me-focus destroys community. Verse 34 of chapter 4 says that from time to time people sold property and gave the money to the apostles to distribute to those in need. seems that this had become somewhat of a regular practice. There are a number of people doing it. Now Ananias and Sapphira, as part of this Christian community, saw this expression of unity overflowing in love, both the, uh, the, the sacrificial outpouring of generosity and its outcome. But rather than being encouraged by the good outcome for the recipient of the generosity, what they notice is the respect that the giver gets in return for their generosity. Barnabas' financial gift is probably part of the reason the son of encouragement got his nickname. And who wouldn't want praise like that from an apostle? Imagine the apostles giving you a nickname. So Ananias and his wife Sapphira come up with a plan in order to receive similar approval. They agree to do exactly the same thing, that is, to sell a property of theirs and put the money at the feet of the apostles. But there's one small important difference. They're going to keep some of the proceeds for themselves. I think it's really important to notice that Luke doesn't actually tell us how much they withheld probably because we would misuse the information as a loophole to justify our own actions. But given that the money that they brought could pass for the full amount from the sale, it's likely that they actually gave an enormous gift, a very generous-looking gift. Now, we don't understand why it happened this way for some unstated reason, Ananias takes the money all on his own. Presumably anticipating the praise that he's about to receive. But instead of thanks, a prayer of gratitude and the granting of a new nickname, Peter's response is scathing. We're not told the details of how he knew what he knew, but Peter immediately exposes the deception. Have a look again at verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? That you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. See, Ananias pretended that this gift was brought for the benefit of others. But it was in reality a, a desperate grasp at honour for himself. Rather than focused on the needs of others, Ananias had put his own wants first. Caught like a deer in the headlights, Ananias must have stood there with his mouth open, aghast that Peter knew every last detail. How on earth had Peter seen through their brilliant plan? Well it's not stated explicitly, clearly God has let Peter know. And worst of all, God explains what's the worst part of this, that in pretending to love others, Ananias hadn't just lied to men, he had lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3, that is, lied to God, verse 4. And with that pronouncement made, Ananias drops dead. Now, unsurprisingly, fear descends on all those listening. An angry Sanhedrin was completely unable to invoke fear amongst the apostles. But God's actions are absolutely terrifying. The young men had the dreadful duty of carrying Ananias' lifeless body out and burying him. I think that the suddenness and severity is supposed to remind us of the time that David brought up the ark to Jerusalem. If you go back later and read 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's a man named Uzzah who reaches out his hand to steady the ark of the covenant. And God immediately strikes Uzzah dead. In both cases, Uzzah and Ananias, it seems outwardly to be a good thing that they're doing. But there was a hidden disobedience that draws the immediate death penalty. Now, before we can draw too many conclusions about the why, Luke continues on with a sad story. Verse 7, Sapphira comes to meet the apostles about three hours later. Now, where on earth has she been for those three hours? And why does nobody pass on condolences as she's walking in to the apostles wherever they are? That's our question, not Luke's. Peter actually asks her a question. Is this the amount that you got from the sale. And following the agreement that she and Ananias had made earlier, she says, yeah, that's the amount. And no doubt with terrible sadness in his voice, Peter responds, how, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? With her sin exposed, Sapphira drops dead as well. Verse 11. Great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. Mega fear has come in the place of mega grace. What kind of fear were the church feeling? We know that, we know that sometimes fear in the Bible is just to be scared. At other times, the same word describes an awareness of how much greater, how much holier How much more powerful God is than we are. And my guess is that the church was feeling a mixture of both. Both the original audience and us here tonight are left asking if this is how God treats people who lie, who have mixed motives, who have some selfish hiddenness, sorry, some selfishness hidden mixed in with their attempts to do the right thing. Are we all doomed? Well, thankfully, as we've been focusing through this whole series of Acts, Acts doesn't establish a pattern of what will or should take place every time, even if our sin is just as horrendous as Ananias and Sapphira's. But I think that their wickedness and God's swift judgment does remain a lesson to us. Peter was spot on. After they sold their property... The money still did belong to them and was theirs to do with as they wanted. This was not Christian communism, verse 4. They didn't have to give all of the proceeds. They didn't have to give a tithe of the sale. In fact, they didn't have to give anything at all. But to give in an attempt to get is an abomination to God. Generous financial gifts were Holy Spirit-inspired sacrifices in order to look after the community. But this was a human plan, to get the community to look up to them, to honour them, to, to think of them more highly. Most of you know that I ride bikes, and anyone who is remotely interested in exercise, especially bike riding, records all of their rides on an app called Strava, If you don't have Strava, you got to get on it. Friends can then see how far and how fast you've gone and they award you kudos by clicking on a little thumbs-up icon in the app. And then you get an email from Strava telling you how many people have given you kudos for your ride. It's very, very encouraging. Um, Like all social media platforms, sadly, some people do end up finding their self-worth in what others think of them, how many kudos they get. But seeking the good of opinion of others is not a new problem, or restricted to those of us who are in the digital generation. Craving the high opinion of others is not a new problem. It has expressed itself in different forms from the beginning of time. If Ananias and Sapphira's scheme was done in 2020, 2022, they would be nothing more than a deceitful and ultimately deadly attempt to get kudos on the Christian version of Facebook or Strava. But the community that Jesus has bought with his death is not to have a me-focused goal. It's here in verse 11 that we get the very first reference to the word church. Jesus died to establish a community called church, and anything that harms church is an abomination to him. To put oneself above the church is to steal something which doesn't belong to us. And if it was permitted to continue on, that kind of behaviour would break the unity of the community, which I think is why the second bookend of chapter 5, verses 12 to 16 detail What happens when we get this right? When the focus is rightly put on we instead of me. Point three. We focus extends community. So have a look at those verses. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed." Again, this is a summary statement from Luke explaining what's going on. And it's important to notice the repeated emphasis of the apostles doing signs and wonders. And then their testimony to Jesus. Accompanying their witness is the witness of unified believers. Meet together in verse 12 is literally of one mind. It's how you describe the group of believers. As was Also used back in chapter 2 verse 42, all who believe in Jesus are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Said a different way again in chapter 4 verse 32, they had one heart and soul. This oneness or unity is the default position of church. They stand together boldly in the face of opposition and an event which very, very easily could have led to internal conflict, fails to divide this unified group. It fails to turn the church from what it exists for. They remain united. But their unity is not just about them. As Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, By this, by love, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so the Christian's unity expressed in practical love impacts those outside of the community as well as impacting the community itself. Outside of the community, verse 13, they didn't dare associate with the church. And verse 14, multitudes more were joining. Now clearly Luke isn't that thought through, is he? There there seems to be two opposite, in fact, incompatible things being put together here. But I think it's actually another realistic little detail that confirms the truthfulness of Luke's account. If this was a fairy tale, then everyone would have been so scared by Ananias and Sapphira's death that all of the remaining Jews in Jerusalem would have turned and trusted in Jesus. But people are people, and change is difficult. To associate with the church this breakaway group of Jews who have trusted in Jesus as Lord and Messiah was to risk being rejected by their own Jewish community. Many were unwilling to take the risk, even though they respected those who had. And yet while there were pressures to not join, to retain their old beliefs, to, to stick with family tradition, great numbers of people, both men and women, can't hold themselves back from joining the church, this supernaturally united community. While there's a natural push away, there is at the same time a natural pull in. And so, many were drawn by the witness of the apostles, the signs and wonders they did, and the unity expressed by the believers in love. They're so drawn by this that they join the church. It's a cycle that will repeat itself over and over. The church, Jesus' united community, continue their role of being his witness. The apostles preach powerfully about Jesus and it's accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. Even Peter's passing shadow, verse 15, was used by Jesus to heal the sick who were laid in the street in the hope of him just walking by. And those who believe the message and trust in Jesus are united, verse 12, gathering together at this point still in the temple in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. It's a unity within that perpetually draws even more into that unity and extends it. And verse 16 finishes with a little hint that chapter 1, verse 8, our memory verse for the term, is being fulfilled. Chapter 5, verse 16, crowds gathered also from the town's around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. The witness to Jesus is starting to spread beyond Jerusalem. Where is it going to go? No external threat, no internal grab for respect could derail more and more people from coming into this community, putting their trust in the resurrected and ruling King Jesus when the focus is rightly put on the whole community, even more people are drawn into that community. Which leads into our final point, point four, our community. If you're anything like me, Acts chapter four and five leave us longing for it to be so again. That we, as Christians here, would be so unified that there are none in need among us. How good would it be if, We all agreed about everything, were loved in practical ways so that all of our needs were met. What would happen in Wollongong and the Illawarra if everyone was bold in sharing about Jesus? Oh, if only God would do those kind of miracles again now. That as we walk down the street, our shadow passing over people would cause people to be healed and demons to flee. I don't pretend to know the whole answer of why it's not like that. But isn't it at least part of our problem that we only want the spectacular? Like a buffet, we want to pick the things that we like and reject the things we don't. We take on the miracles, the receptive crowds, the, the unity, the boldness. But we want it without the persecution, without the holiness and, and the need to sacrifice on behalf of the other that clearly went hand in hand. I want everybody to agree with my song choices. I want God to heal my family member, my friend. I want that which will benefit me. And when church has become all about me, I've strayed into the very motivation that led to the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Church is not about me. It's about Jesus and those he has rescued. And so, surely I have to transform my understanding of church. It doesn't exist to provide what I want. I'm a part of a community that exists for the glory of Jesus. And so my decisions must be driven by what will honour him and, and those that he has bought. And I think that it's going to affect us in at least two ways. Our unity together and our drawing others into that unity. And so meeting on a Sunday will be seen as an opportunity that I that I get to be together with others who I would probably never otherwise be together with. Because Jesus is our Lord and Messiah, I want to meet with these people. Now post-COVID, many people are coming to church less frequently and for some there are valid reasons for not coming as frequent. But before you decide to miss a week, I think that we all need to ask, is this me missing church for the sake of others or for the sake of me? Likewise, I'll see it as a privilege to serve, not a duty. Can you help me with this? Sure, I'd love to. When I find home group inconvenient, I'll be reminded that it's an opportunity to meet with others to encourage them to build them up, to study God's word together with them. And so rather than putting home group into the too hard basket, I'll look for practical ways around the things that get in the way of me going. When I have a disagreement with my brother or sister in Christ, unity is damaged. The unity that was bought by Jesus. So I can't ignore it. I must be reconciled. Now these practical decisions may not seem to be the equivalent sacrifices selling your house, but some of these things aren't that much easier to do. But church is never just about those who are already here. Rather than a holy huddle, holy spirit-inspired unity and the love that results, is always a love that seeks to and is excited when others are brought into it. And so we will pray for those who are currently doing the Christianity Explored course. We'll buy pies to financially support our scripture teachers so they can be out there sharing the good news of Jesus with kids in public schools. You can get the book of the term and think through more practical ways to share your trust in Jesus with your neighbours and friends. You can sign up to the Community Cleaner Upper and Cupper that Brendan Riley from the Morning Church is organising, or you can invite someone to a screening of the movie Eternity. Uh, telling the story of Arthur Stace during the Cycling World Championships. One of the things that cyclists love to do when there's races on, they write people's names on the on the ground as the cyclists are going to go over. Instead, we're going to have a a stencil. You just buy some spray chalk. You spray Eternity on in the copper copper plate bold script that Arthur Stace used to write it on. And then there's going to be a movie of the same name that you can invite people to come and watch it. There's going to be a whole range of opportunities that we'll be advertising over the coming weeks that you can be part of. Easy invites. Or feel free to come up with more of your own. You can pray or even become a part of the team doing the church plan at Calderwood. I'm more convinced than ever that selling real estate in Acts 4 and 5 is just an example of love in action. What can we come up with that will show our love for God's people here and those that he wants to bring into this community? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please do it again in our day? Enable us to see what our role is both towards our brothers and sisters and to those who are on the outside looking in. Make us bold and show us what it looks like to love in practical ways that will benefit the other right now instead of benefiting us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to do it, whatever that is, not so that we will be honoured, but so that you will be. We pray this in the great name of Jesus our Lord.
0: Amen.